Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Home Field Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. Hello, old sports, and welcome back to the Hello, Old Sports podcast here on the Sports History Network. You have once again found yourself listening to the Hello, Old Sports podcast with Andrew Newman and Dan Newman on the Sports History Network. Andrew, how are you doing today? I am well, Dan. This is a topic or a an era that we knew we would get into eventually and we're really you know we've talked about this before you hear people talk about oh i love you know they're big into sports history or they're big into talking about how since they're older they appreciate the history of sports and that it really what they mean is they know the sport going back to when they were children you know you hear a lot of this with like baby boomers where they're like oh kids don't know about the history of the sport you know and then the farthest back they go is the late 60s when they were kids. Well, we're going to go way back tonight. Sadly, we thought we had a heck of a guest tonight. Uh, Foxy Ned Hanlon, the manager of the teams we're going to talk about. We thought we had him booked, but he at the last minute had to cancel because he died in 1937, which to be honest was a lot later than I would have thought. If you thought he died in 1908, I'd have been like, yeah, that's about right. But, um, you know, we'll obviously have a lot to to get into with their disreputable ways on the diamond but this is also the story of one of baseball's earliest dynasties and it's a chance to talk about baseball in the 19th century which you know we the farthest back you're going to talk about football we did 1920 that's really the farthest you're going to talk about and even that's kind of pushing it basketball even if you were to talk colleges it's hard to see going back before like the post-world war ii era Hockey, maybe a little earlier. The only sports you can really go this far back on in a U.S. sports context are boxing and baseball. So I'm excited. So as Andrew alluded to, our topic this episode is a little bit older. We talked last episode about the Baltimore Orioles of the 1990s, uh, Cal Ripken and Mike Mussina and some dramatic losses in a couple of league championship series included to our, including to our beloved New York Yankees. And we decided that it would be good in the wake of an episode about the nineties Orioles to talk about the other Orioles from the other nineties. And that is the Baltimore Orioles of the 1890s a team, which had a little bit more success than its predecessors a hundred years ago, a team that featured a number of Hall of Famers in the course of the franchise's history. So we are all about the Baltimore Orioles of the 19th century and specifically of the 1890s. And this is a team that won two world championships in the 1890s. They won a number of pennants in the National League and really dominated the 1890s along with the Boston Bean Eaters in the last decade of the 20th century. Before we start, I'd like to, as always, encourage you all to 
Follow us on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Hello Old Sports Podcast. If you want to email us with a show suggestion or any other thoughts, comments, critiques, you name it, you can email us right at helloldsports at gmail.com. And of course, also please rate and review us on iTunes or whatever your podcast app of choice is. So with that, why don't we go ahead and travel back about 130 years to Baltimore in the 1890s and talk about the Baltimore Orioles. Right. So I think to start, it would help to set the table of baseball up to the founding of the Orioles franchise. We'll forego for a minute the very early pre-Civil War, you know, the New York Knickerbockers founding, or for lack of a better word, creating the game of baseball. And, and we won't get into that whole rabbit hole. Safe to say, you can tell the history, the true history of the founding of baseball without mentioning the name of Abner Doubleday. But, you know, you had a lot of leagues or, you know, teams and then leagues that were very loosely formed. And then he ended up with the first league, which was the National Association of Baseball Clubs, which was the first real league that's recognized as any kind of major league. And that sort of, and you can correct me on any of these details, Dan, but that sort of led into the National League. And for a long time, the National League was at various points, the only real major league. Now, this was a time where there was hundreds of minor leagues throughout the country, but the story of the Orioles begins with one of the first leagues that attempted to either compete or cut into the monopoly, basically, of the National League, and that was the American Association, which has one of the coolest uh, nicknames Ever And it was sort of an unofficial name, which was the Beer and Whiskey League, which began play in the 1880s. Yes, the uh, and at some point we will do an episode sort of like we did for basketball a couple months back about rival and expansion leagues in baseball. And the American Association is probably the first one that we'll talk about. And so when you hear about the history of Major League Baseball, you think about the American League and the National League, and what people don't realize is that the American Association at the time was considered to be the second major league. And so you'll hear, whether it's records or you know one, one place where you maybe see this manifest itself sometimes is people say, well, who was the first black player in Major League Baseball? And everybody says Jackie Robinson. Well, actually, it wasn't. There was a player by the name of Fleet Walker who played in the 1880s, and I don't have the team off the top of my head, but played for a team in the... Toledo? I'm sorry? He played for Toledo. That sounds right. That was a team in Toledo. And so these were... This was considered a major league, and this wasn't a situation where sort of retrospectively they went back and looked at it as a major league. This was considered a major league at the time, and they featured some teams that would later on go on to make their way into the major league. So some teams that started off American Association include the Cincinnati Red Stockings, who later became the Cincinnati Reds, the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, later became the Pittsburgh Pirates, the St. Louis Browns, who later became the St. Louis Cardinals. That one's a little bit confusing because they later 
their leader was another St. Louis Browns team in the early 20th century in the American League that, fittingly enough, became Baltimore Orioles in the 1950s. And even the the Dodgers, the current day L.A. Dodgers, got their start in the American Association as the Brooklyn Atlantics. And then they later went on to join the National League in the 1890s as the Brooklyn Dodgers. So quite a few teams in the American Association are forerunners of teams that are in the current day major leagues. And so this was a a second major league at the time. And starting in 1884, you saw a end-of-year World Series between the two teams, an end-of-year championship series that would go from anything anywhere from a best of five to one year they actually played 15 games. And the, the champion of the National League every year would play against the champion of the American Association, and that went on for, it looks like, about eight years. So two major leagues in the 1880s and early 1890s in Major League Baseball. And it was there that the Baltimore Orioles franchise got their start. They came into the American Association. And if you'll just excuse me here, they came into the American Association, I believe it was in 1882. Right at the start in 82, yeah. And while we're talking, you mentioned the teams that can still trace their lineage to today and there's a few of those there's also some teams if you were to look at teams that ever existed in the american association some teams that although the lineage doesn't continue to today there are some names that continue to today because they later were brought back as team names for more modern teams you know you see the two different versions of the philadelphia athletics who Ultimately, there was an, an American League team in 1901 named the Philadelphia Athletics. You have a Washington Senators and a Washington Nationals, as well as a Baltimore Orioles, which we'll obviously spend a lot of time on. Also, a Milwaukee Brewers and a team known as the Cleveland Spiders, which may end up making a comeback here. And also, finally, the New York Metropolitans from 1883 to 1887, who are the short name for the New York, or the full name of the New York Mets, who exist today. So, you know, a lot of uh, history with names there, even if not necessarily the lineage, although there's a handful of those. So the Orioles come into being in 1882 in the American Association. They are founded by a gentleman by the name of Harry Vonderhorst, who is a man who owns a local brewing company, and the Orioles, I think for the next several years, they are pretty terrible. They finished in last place in 1882. They finished in last place in 1883. In 1884, they finished sixth. And then 85, last place. 86, last place. They get a little bit better in the latter half of the 1880s, but they never finish more than 11 and a half games out of first place. And they're really sort of a pretty terrible team all the way until the very end of the 1880s. And they kind of bottom out in the 1892 season. And I think that's probably where we'll pick up our narrative a little bit. They have a record of 46 and 101 with five ties in the 1892 season. That's a 313 winning percentage. And it is good enough for 12th out of 12 and a 54.5 games out of first place in the American Association. I'm sorry, in the National League. This is their first year in the National League, 1892. 
and they fold. Um, I'm sorry, they they the American Association had folded. The Orioles joined the National League. The National League balloons up to 12 teams, and the Orioles are the worst of the worst in their very first year in the National League. Yep, the Orioles, Louisville, and St. Louis were the only three teams who were there for the whole run of the American Association. And then when they switched to the National League to sort of give you, you said that the balloon, balloons up to 12 teams. So you have essentially what you'd think of in the early part of the 20th century as the classic National League eight teams. Plus you have the Baltimore Orioles, you have the Cleveland Spiders, you have Louisville, and then you have Washington. You know, beyond that, it's St. Louis, the Cardinals, Brooklyn, the Cubs, the Pirates, the Reds, Philadelphia, the Boston Braves, and the Giants. So when those four teams joined the National League, you ended up with the eight teams that would be the National League until the early 50s are in place, and then there's just four additional teams of which the Orioles are one. So in 1892, the Orioles are managed by a gentleman by the name of George Van Haltren, who, and I, I believe this is his only managerial experience in his entire life. Yeah, this is his only managerial experiences. And he starts off as the manager of the Orioles. Van Haltren is a guy who, on occasion, you'll hear him talk about somebody from the 19th century who may be kind of sort of belongs in the Hall of Fame. He played 17 years. His best years were probably after he left Baltimore. He, play, he plays on some of the really good New York Giants teams of the 1890s. Leads the league in steals one year. Leads the league in triples another year. If you look at some of his batting averages, 422 with the Pirates in 1893. He hits... I'm sorry, that's wrong. He, his on-base was 422. 338, 331, 340, 351. A really good player and a guy, like I said, who you really hear talked about sometimes as a potential Hall of Famer, but not a very good manager. And Vonderhorst fires George Van Haltren about 15 games. I'm looking here. I think I have their their full record here, if you'll just bear with me for a second here. Yeah, the he fires Van Haltren with a record of one in 10, and then they have an interim manager for five or six games. And in 1892 uh, is when they hire with a, they have a one in 16 record. And that's when they hire Foxy Ned Hanlon, the future hall of famer who it comes in and manages the team. And he is the one who will lead the Orioles throughout the 1890s to their glory years as a dynasty. Yep, and Hanlon had been a player previous to that, spent some time with the Cleveland Blues, the Detroit Wolverines, the Pittsburgh Alleghenies. He was part of the, you know, we talked about the American Association, the Beer and Whiskey League as an alternate league. There was also in the late 1880s a very brief league called the Players League, which um, lasted, what, two seasons, the Players League? May have only been one. I think it might have just been uh, 1890. Yeah, so and it's the fact that there were three of them kind of sped up the demise of the American Association as well. So he was involved in that, as you can guess by the name. That was a league that was really trying to do some things that were considered revolutionary at the time in terms of players having some rights and being able to make some money and things like that. After that, he after that doesn't work. He's allowed back. Uh, you know, some of the higher profile members of the players' league had some difficulty re 
assimilating into the National League, um, but he's plays with the Pirates for a year and then finishes up with, with the Orioles as a player in 1892. But he also, by this point, is a full-time manager, as he had been with those three different iterations of the first the Alleghenies, then the Pittsburgh Burgers, and then the Pirates. And then he settles in for a long time with Baltimore. But as we'll talk about at the end, it was not his last managerial job, which I was unaware of before we started talking about this. Definitely. We will get to that a little bit later. So Hanlon inherits a team and there are really only a couple of players on the team who he considers to be worth anything. One is a catcher, a guy by the name of Wilbert Robinson, who eventually will be elected to the Hall of Fame as a manager. He's the manager of the Dodgers, the Brooklyn team in the early 1900s. And we'll talk a little bit later about sort of that link between the Brooklyn team and these Baltimore Orioles. But Robinson is the catcher. He eventually actually becomes the namesake of the Brooklyn team because before they're called the Dodgers, they're actually called the Brooklyn Robins in the 19-teens and 20s in honor of their manager, Wilbert Robinson. So Robinson is already on the team, and they also have John McGraw. John McGraw, who goes on to be a great manager, but is a really good player, maybe even a great player in his own right, during the 1890s, a guy who comes from a very impoverished background. I think his mother and several of his siblings die of, is is it influenza that they die of? I want to say it was influenza, yeah. Uh, He was born in Trucks, or he grew up in Truxton, New York, while Dan is looking, looking some stuff up. By 1894, the only guys left on the team from the original National League team when Hanlon took over in 1892 were... Sadie McMahon and then Robinson and McGraw. And, you know, the thing about McGraw that I find interesting, first of all, you said he was what a great manager. There is only one manager and his name is McGraw. That's a quote from something I assume. I don't remember who it is, but it's, it's a quote from somebody. The kind of cool through line that I've thought about before is that you can go through John McGraw. John McGraw learned his baseball from Ned Hanlon in the 1890s, Baltimore Orioles was kind of, Hanlon's protege and 30 years later or 20 years later for a very brief time McGraw had a protege in the 20s with the Giants by the name of Casey Stengel so just through that there's a through line there from Foxy Ned Hanlon to John McGraw to Casey Stengel and you can really take it a step further if you think about it did Hanlon learn his baseball from Lincoln (laughs) No, but Casey Stengel taught his baseball to Billy Martin. Yeah, that's a good point. And Billy Martin was a f- phenomenal manager. So, you know. Yeah. So then, you know, I guess that you could look and see, I don't know, maybe Buck Showalter or somebody with somebody that learned from. You don't from... want to water it down. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to it down. <laughs> but I think Billy Martin deserves to be part of that chain. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. But um, there's yeah. a great book by the name from a guy by the name of Jerry Lanch who wrote a book called Glory Fades Away, the 19th Century World Series Rediscovered. And he actually, this is an honest to God, just history of the 19th Century World Series. Every chapter is a different year of the 19th Century World Series. So it's a really cool book. And this is what he writes about. He said about McGraw. He says, Weighing in at only 155 pounds, John McGraw, nicknamed the Little Napoleon, was one of the best hitting third basemen. Because the whole thing about Napoleon is that he was little. (laughs) Fair enough. Born just outside Truxton, New York, the son of John and Ellen Comfort Fort McGraw, 
John Joseph McGraw was named after his grandfather back in Ireland. The eldest of eight children, John was 11 years old when he lost his mother and four siblings to typhoid. The family moved from their farm to a frame house in Truxton proper, where McGraw, a well-liked child who served in the local parish as an altar boy, clashed often with his father, who considered the boy's preoccupation with baseball a waste of time. And then McGraw eventually goes on to run away from home and basically spend the rest of his life playing baseball. So Hanlon has McGraw. He's got Wilbur Robertson. He's got Sadie McMahon, as Andrew mentioned. One of the other things that's worth mentioning about McGraw, he me- I'm sorry, that was worth mentioning about Hanlon is that he wore a silk top hat and spats while managing from the bench. So you'd see other guys like uh, Connie Mack go on to manage in street clothes and a suit and tie, but Hanlon takes it a step further and wears fancy shoes and a top hat while he manages the Orioles in the 1890s. And some guys would wear, uh, like this is an interesting McGraw thing, by the 20s, McGraw would wear a suit in the World Series. He would wear a uniform during the year. So it wasn't unheard of that guys would wear suits occasionally. Connie Mack and obviously before that, Ned Hanlon always wearing suits was different. And the thing with that too is you couldn't go on the field. Like yeah. they always talk about how Connie Mack was never ejected from a game as a manager of the A's. And, you know, obviously a lot of that was his sort of collegial temperament. But a, another thing was that he wasn't allowed on the field. So, and you, it, they rarely, I think, threw guys out for using ungentlemanly language from the dugout back then. Not that Connie Mack would have done it anyway, but, you know, just, just an interesting sight, especially in um, the rough and tumble game of the 1890s, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a little while. I wonder if the suit was sort of a, you know, they talk about certain comedians where it's like, I've heard people talk about stand-up comedians and say like, if you're going to be filthy, you have to wear a suit. You can get away with more if you wear a suit. I wonder if that was part of Ned Hanlon's, uh, <laughs> if that was part of his strategy based on some of the things the Orioles did. That, But the other thing I wanted to touch on with Hanlon, you know, because we'll obviously get into some of these specific years, and I did not know this before doing the research on this episode, you, you don't think about the fact that certain things in baseball had to be invented. They didn't always exist. You know, in the Ken Burns baseball tape, they talk about Candy Cummings inventing the curveball. And it's like somebody had to invent that. But yeah, obviously somebody had to come up with throwing a curveball. Ned Hanlon is credited with creating the hit and run with the Orioles in the 1890s. It was actually people got mad about it, that it was sort of cheapening the game or that, you know, when they first came up with it, they were doing it so many times. But you know, of all the things the Orioles did that were outright cheating, this was just a, a smart strategic move. But again, it's something you think about like, yeah, somebody did have to come up with that at some point. As basic a baseball thing as it is now, it, it wasn't preordained when you made the game of baseball. So it's interesting to learn where certain really early strategies come from. And some other things that they invented. They invented the cutoff throw on a stolen base. So let's say you have runners on first and third. You try and steal second base so that the runner will draw a throw. And if the throw goes wild, or even if just you're able to get a jump, you use the throw to second as an advantage for the runner on third to try and steal home. Hanlon and the Orioles of this time invented this idea of having somebody cut the throw off. I guess it would be the shortstop or maybe the second baseman throwing the ball really quick to the catcher and try and tag out the lead runner stealing home plate, they invented the famous Baltimore chop where you would 
hit down on the ball really hard, trying to get a good bounce that would bounce over the head of the infielders and you'd get a base hit. It was the type of thing they they enlisted the groundskeeper to keep the infield as hard as possible so that the Baltimore chop would would bounce as high as possible. They also were known for some of the other things that they did were a little bit more on the dirty trick side of things. John McGraw was known for grabbing a runner's belt as he rounded third so that he couldn't score. They were known for, again, working with the groundskeeper. They would hide an extra baseball in the high grass. So if they needed it, they would be able to just grab a ball and throw the runner out at, you know, wherever they need to throw the runner out. So all of these little tricks, some, like you mentioned, innovative, others more just out and out cheating, but all contributed to them winning so much and to their reputation as this brawling team that's really endured even throughout, you know, the last 120 or 130 years. Yeah, and we don't want to, you know, we don't want to just talk about that stuff because there is legitimate good baseball and, and you know, important to the history of the sport. But we also don't want to not talk about it because, and I, I'm not trying to say like, I'm not trying to take the 1890s Orioles down a peg in service of the bean eaters or whatever. We should talk about it because it's amusing. And it kind of goes to show, because they were by, I mean, a lot of this stuff, and I have a list here from an article from the Baltimore Sun a few years ago, which I'll talk about, but most teams were rough on umpires. Most teams occasionally spiked guys. There were fights all the time. It would get you in trouble if you punched the umpire, but if somebody punched an umpire now, it would be national news for a month. Back then, it was just kind of like, yeah, he slugged the umpire. But the, this Baltimore Sun article from a few years ago, the title of the subsection about the cheating is called Sophomoric to Sublime. And it talks about they hit extra balls in the outfield, which they sneaked into play, which Dan talked about. They'd writhe on the ground and pinch themselves to fake being hit by a pitch. The hit and run, obviously, which wasn't cheating uh, or, you know, was just smart baseball. It said players would yell, I've got us on pop-ups hit by teammates, interfered with foul flies that drifted near their bench. My favorite one of these is probably running across the infield. This was the day of one umpire. So if the umpire was following, you know, the ball or something like that or, or you know, had his eye somewhere else, a runner may, on his way from first to second, just cut across second and run straight to third without ever touching second because there's obviously no video replay. There's no video. There's no other umpire to, to keep an eye on it. And then some other stuff that I legitimately had not heard about, shaving their bats flat on one side to help with bunting. This was the era of a base at a time and aggressive tactics. So if you could bunt and, and get on or, or bunt to move a runner over, so they would do things like that. And then some other things, the catcher would sometimes just drop rocks in the shoes of the guy at the plate. So just gradually as the catcher's standing there, he would just sprinkle pebbles from the dirt in a batter's shoe. So when the batter swung and, you know, let's say he was a ground ball and he was trying to run to first base, all of a sudden his shoes would be filled with pebbles and rocks and things like that. So they took the advantage any way they could. Some of them were creative tactics that are still being used today, tactics being used. Some of them were... um uh, cheap, like yelling, I got it. And then some of them was just legitimate cheating, like running from first to third. Um, so uh, yes, it's it's an important part of the story and it adds color to uh, to baseball in that era. And they, were, they weren't the only ones to cheat and do things like this. They were the ones who made it an art form. 
Yeah, I think that's right. They did it better than anybody else. And I think sometimes you hear about that a lot when you talk about anything in sports, really, is it practices that were undertaken by everybody in the league or everybody in the sport at that time, they get specifically attributed to the ones who were the best and then the ones who therefore did it the best. Yeah, and this article I have in The Sun, you know, it also talks about how the city kind of identified with the team, and this was a new phenomenon. I mean, baseball was really the first team sport. I I don't know about soccer in Europe or things like that, but it was the first team sport to be played by adults in front of spectators and things like that. I have a book on, I forget which era it is, but they talk about fans in the stands in either the late 19th or early 20th century. If like a player on the other team would make a really good play, the fans would cheer. And it's like, okay, you can look back at that now and say, like, what's the deal there? But you kind of go, yeah, this was a whole new phenomenon. They they did just they were inventing the rules for fans at the time. So, you know, I'm reading some things here about the city, obviously an up-and-coming city in terms of things like manufacturing. It says locals rushed to cash in on the Orioles' success. A jeweler on Baltimore Street peddled baseball buttons and pins. A brewery sold Oriole Export Lager, which is something that would happen now. You know, like craft beer dedicated to specific teams and things like that. A baseball scorecard advertisement trumpeted all Orioles, right? Eagle bicycles. Players, you know, they were one of the first teams to do a lot of like endorsements and things like that. Even the, this says, even the abrasive John McGraw shilled for Hess shoes. (laughs) McGraw, a notorious umpire baiter, touted the footwear as being fine shoes to kick in. I think your point about Baltimore is a good one. Here's another quote from Glory Fades Away, the Jerry Lanch book. Baltimore was known in the 1890s as Mob Town, a legacy from the city's violent reputation, which had been cultivated over the past half century. The reputation was well-deserved. In the presidential elections of 1856, eight persons had been killed and nearly 300 injured by hoodlums engaged in electioneering. Competition between fire companies to see which engines could get to a fire first often ended in free-for-alls while a house or building raged nearby. And luckily, that was the extent of mob violence during the Buchanan administration, and it was smooth sailing after. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah. Just cite my source there. This, This article is actually much older than I thought it was. It's from 1996, during the 96 Orioles run was by Mike Klingman, Klingman in the Baltimore Sun. So I just, since I quoted from it quite a bit, I wanted to, uh, to just cite it. But, um, you know, yeah, they're a legitimate phenomenon in the city and among the baseball world. And, you know, this is sort of also the advent of sports journalism. And if you think about what's going on in journalism at the time, in general, it's very sensationalistic. You know, this is around the Spanish-American War, which was basically created to sell newspapers or basically ginned up to sell newspapers. You know, you had a lot of sensationalistic reporting and that carried over into sports. And you'd hear about all the exploits of these guys. The good was exaggerated. The bad was exaggerated, depending on who the target audience was. Luckily, with baseball, we still have some surviving stats where we can kind of parse a lot of this stuff beyond the firsthand accounts, which in some instances are only the truth was seen as just a decent jumping off point for the story. And of course you have the fights, Yeah, you know, the, the famous story, I think this was actually in Boston where John McGraw got in a fight 
And in the course of the fight, somebody set the stands on fire and these were all wooden ballparks at the time. And so not only the wooden ballpark, but also several neighborhood homes and apartment buildings all went up in flames. And basically a baseball fight with John McGraw as the instigator and caused an entire neighborhood to go up in flames. Yeah, it's, you know, that was, uh, that was one of their key rivals was the, uh, was the Red Sox or the Bean Eaters or whatever they were. The Bean Eaters were the Braves, right? Yeah, the Bean Eaters. No, it was the Bean Eaters. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, The Boston Bean Eaters who became the Boston Braves who then became eventually the Atlanta Braves with a stop off in Milwaukee. I want to read from another book here. This is a, a history of the Orioles that was done in the 50s. So it's actually a history of the 90s Orioles and then the St. Louis Browns and then like the Browns, their first couple of years in the Orioles. And we're going to talk about Willie Keeler in a couple minutes, but this talks about a teammate of his. Steve Brody had so much respect for Keeler's fielding ability that he felt Willie could play both his center field position and his own right field position. A fan sitting in the center field bleachers had been riding Brody unmercifully. And after some difficulty, Steve located the abusive rooter. Do you mind covering center field as well as right field in this inning? I got that guy spotted, and I'm going to go up there and give him a going over. <laughs> and I believe there was a ladder involved, too. I don't know if I read that part of it, but I think he somehow needed a ladder to get into the, to the field, get into the stands and try and beat this guy up. So fighting with opponents, with umpires, with fans, with really anybody who would care to cross them. So we talked about McGraw. We talked about Hanlon. We talked about Robinson. Another thing that's worth mentioning is that all of these guys, McGraw, Hanlon, some of these other guys we're going to talk about, there's a very healthy Irish-American element to this. I think the 1890s and maybe into the early 1900s are kind of the golden age for Irish-American baseball players. And and the, 18, the 1890s Orioles did no favors to the stereotype of brawling, heavy-drinking Irish-Americans in the late 19th century. They were uh, unfortunately examples in the affirmative of that sort of ugly stereotype. But um, as we've talked about with a lot of these brawls and stuff, they were guys who never met a fight they didn't like. But uh, go ahead. Sorry, Dan. No, no, I think that's exactly right. So we should probably talk about the guy who was probably their best player, and that was Willie Keeler. Shortly after coming to the team, Hanlon makes a move, and the trade that he makes is for a guy, a first baseman, a guy who's been in the league since the 1870s. He's been in Major League Baseball since the 1870s. His best years were with two teams in the National League who no longer are in existence, and that's the Buffalo Bisons and the Detroit Wolverines. This is a guy by the name of Dan Bruthers. Dan Bruthers, who's one of the the great sluggers of the 1890s. He, and this is a big deal at the time, he hits double-digit home runs a number of times, leads the league in RBIs, leads the league in pretty much every offensive category at one point or another. By 1894, he is 36 years old. He's an aging player with the Brooklyn team in the National League. But Hanlon arranges a trade, brings in Dan Bruthers, and then sort of as a throw-in, also brings in a young player by the name of 
Willie Keeler, who many know as We Willie Keeler. So before we talk about Keeler, we should probably talk a little bit about Dan Bruthers, five-time batting champion, guy who makes the Hall of Fame in his own right, and somebody who is near and dear to our hearts here on Hello Old Sports. If you look at the Hello Old Sports page on the Sports History Network website, you will see yours truly posing at the grave site of Dan Bruthers at his gravestone. I couldn't tell if that was because you were like appreciative or if that was you bragging that you had outlived him. <laughs> yeah, you, you can in our, our pictures, which we took a picture together that for some reason never got uploaded to the website. Yeah, we, I, have to, I have to get that from Allison. That's a good point. We took that at Thanksgiving. Um, but the, uh, the, the two pictures, the one is me at, at a radio station I used to, to do a show at. And then the other one is Dan next to Dan Bruther's gravestone. He was uh, born and raised in the Hudson Valley where Dan and I are both from. I believe he was from Wappingers, right? He was born in Jersey and then he lived his life. I'm sorry. No, he was born in Sylvan Lake, New York. Take that back. He died in Jersey. That was it. He was born in Sylvan Lake, which is basically just a part of Hopewell Junction, I think. And or LaGrange. I don't know what it was back then, but it's it's all in Dutchess County, New York, Southern Dutchess County, which is where Dan and I Grew up, it's like the Hopewell Junction, Wappingers Falls, Fishkill, New York area, which these days is pretty suburban. As recently as the 50s was very rural. So in the 1800s, it was pretty much totally farmland. I know Bruthers played briefly later, like in the early 1900s, in the minor league that was here for a few years. Now, by this point, a career of baseball and drink had... uh, made him not the player he had been 10 years earlier but um yeah grew up and and spent a good amount of his life in the in the area where i presently am recording the show from not too far down uh down the hudson river from here yeah great player he only really lasts the one year he only really lasts for 1894 with the orioles by 1895 He's getting old and his drinking, as with a lot of these guys, his drinking is really starting to get out of hand. So the Orioles ship him off to Louisville and then he plays another couple of years in the National League before retiring. He actually comes back eight years after retiring with the New York Giants at the age of 46. The manager at that time is his good friend and former teammate, John McGraw, and he comes back and plays in five games and goes 0 for 5 at the age of 46 with the New York Giants. But they have a little more luck with Willie Keeler, who perhaps is the best player or one of the best players of the 1890s. John McGraw later says, I think that other than Ty Cobb, Keeler might be the best player that he's ever seen. As we mentioned, he's known as Wee Willie Keeler, and there's a reason for that that is a very obvious one. This is a very, very small man, and I just want to look up his statistics here. He is five foot four and 140 pounds, so tiny, tiny by today's standards. But even for the time, this is a very small individual to be playing Major League Baseball. Yeah, even if you give him a couple of inches and, you know, 30 pounds and say, by today's standards, and I don't know that this is accurate, but even 5'7 and 175 or 180 is not a real base, you know, not somebody you think of as a great professional 
athlete of any variety in this day and age. So even for the time, a very slight individual. And Keeler does not have the personality that some of his teammates have. And that maybe is to be expected because a guy that small probably isn't looking to get into a lot of fights, but he's a much more soft-spoken type. He's raised in Brooklyn. His father is a trolley operator and also does some farming on the side to help support his family. But really probably the best player of the Orioles teams of the 1890s, he bats 424 in 1897, uh, the same year that he has a 44-game hitting streak, a record that would stand for 50 years, almost 50 years, until Joe DiMaggio comes along. Um, just looking at some of his stats, leads the league in hits with you know very high numbers. He has over 200 hits, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight years in a row. Willie Keeler has over 200 hits. He hits. 424, one year, another year, 385, 386, steals a bunch of bases, you know, 67 stolen bases one year, 64. So just a great, great player, Willie Keeler, and kind of the linchpin of these Oriole teams of the 1890s, and then goes on to finish his career out for the most part. He plays one year in 1910 back with the New York Giants. But he's probably the best player on the very early days of the Yankees in 1904, the Yankees lose the pennant to the Red Sox by a single game. And Keeler is their star that year. He hits 343 and steals some bases, has a bunch of RBIs. So Keeler goes on to be a really, really great player for a number of years. I think one other guy we should mention um, as we get into these, you know, their real four or five year runs starting in 1894. Huey Jennings, the shortstop, another guy we talked about, Robinson, uh, who went on to be the the Dodgers or what became the Dodgers manager. You had McGraw, who managed the Giants for 30 years. You also had Huey Jennings, who managed the Ty Cobb era Tigers, the Tigers that won three straight pennants. Bit of an eccentric guy as manager of the Tigers was known as, I believe his nickname was E. Yaw because he would coach third base, which was not uncommon for managers back then. And he would kind of like raise his arms and one of his legs and yell E. Yaws, trying to like rally the team. And he had all these rituals where he would throw bits of grass in the air and things like that. So, three really successful, well known managers in the early part of the 20th century got their start playing for these 1890s Orioles under Ned Hamlin. And I believe that Jennings is the one yet Jennings leads the league in hit by a pitch five years in a row in 1896. He is hit by a pitch 51 times in 130 games, 602 plate appearances. So that means in essence, he gets hit with the ball one out of every 12 times he comes to bat. That's just insane. Yeah, wasn't he also one of the guys who, I think he, he was able to get it where it would either just nip him or he was really good at selling, getting hit. But uh, yeah, he was, he was the shortstop. I'm looking at their first championship team in 1894, and uh, it's funny because they played... What did they play? Uh, 89 and 39 is what, 128 games officially? 
138. Eight, oh, I'm sorry, 89 and 29 will be 128, yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at some of the games played here. Robinson is catcher, 109. Bruthers at first, 123, and he was 36 years old. Uh, Heine Reitz, or Reitz, I'm honestly not sure how to pronounce that, at second with 108. Huey Jennings, 128. John McGraw at third, 124. Willie Keeler and Steve Brody in the, or oh, the three outfielders, Willie Keeler, Steve Brody, Joe Kelly, 129. So I'm assuming that counts maybe a, a tie game or a partially played game. But um, they really, the whole year, used 11 position players. They had a guy named Frank Bonner who played in a handful of games in the infield. They had Boiler Yard Clark, who was their backup catcher, played in about 28 games. And then there was a pitcher, an outfielder named Kurtley Baker, who played in two games. But other than that, it was essentially the same eight guys out there every single day. And we should mention Joe Kelly, too, who's another Hall of Famer and who was an outfielder who stayed with the team for that entire 1890s run. He was a Boston guy. He was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He... Another Irishman, obviously, with a name like Kelly. He was born Joe Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, and they added an E to his name at some point uh, during his early career because they thought that he looked, with an E in his name, he looked more like a lace curtain Irish, whereas with just the K-E-L-L-Y, he was more of a shanty Irish. So they wanted to make him look like a more upper-class Irishman, so they added the the E to his last name to make him Joe Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y. It's interesting with all the Hall of Famers and, you know, Kelly, Keeler, and Jennings are probably, and Bruthers for a year, are probably the ones who make the Hall of Fame as players predominantly. McGraw is mostly a manager. Wilbur Robinson is mostly a manager too. But it's funny with all these Hall of Fame players, they really didn't have any Hall of Fame pitchers. And there were plenty of great Hall of Fame pitchers during that period in the 1890s. I'm on the Orioles, which I think is kind of strange. Yeah, I'm looking, again, this is just the 1894 team, but uh, the 1894 rotation, for lack of a better word, you had Sadie McMahon at 25 and 8. Bill Hawk was 16 and 9. Kid Gleason, 15 and 5. And then you had some other guys who made, you know, a handful of starts. Burt Inks, Tony Mullane, Duke Esper. But none of them, I mean, Sadie McMahon won 25 games, but with an ERA over 4 in... Uh, you know, a pitcher's era. It's not considered the dead ball era. That's, you know, generally goes back to when you start the American League and the National League is sort of the dead ball era proper. But, you know, no real good ERAs to to speak of. Looks like Kurtley Baker must have gotten a game as a pitcher because it lists his ERA in 1894 as infinity. <laughs> so I'm guessing it means he came in and didn't get anybody out. But, um, yeah, it was not a overall a dominant pitching team like most good teams were in that era. And I just want to look here, and I'll take 84-2 here just as a, I'm sorry, 94, just as a reference point, because there must have been leaders. Let me, let me see who's sort of the leaders in pitching. While you're looking that up, I'll talk briefly about the Temple Cup and... That was so we talked about, you know, in the late 1880s, early 1890s, the American Association folds, the Players League, which lasted a couple of years, folds. And you have for a good 10 to 12 year period, you have the National League as the only major league. In the 1880s, they had the first World Series, the American Association against the National League. Well, for a few years in the 1890s, they decided to bring that back. 
or something similar. Now, there's only one major league, so what they do is they, they introduce the Temple Cup, and it's, it's like a Stanley Cup where the trophy kind of rotates. It was introduced by, he was a coal, citrus, and lumber baron, William Chase Temple, who was a part owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and that's, so that's the actual cup. And then what the series was was the first and second place teams in the National League would play each other in a best-of-seven-game series. The Orioles are in all four of them, and, you know, as we go through the years, we'll talk about it. A little difficult to do you consider the team that won the pennant that year the champion, or do you consider the team that won the Temple Cup the champion? It's discontinued after four years, largely because three of those years, the second place team wins the series. And interest was declining, too, by that point. Yeah, so they discontinue it after the 1897 season. And then, you know, six years later, the American League is formidable enough where they begin the modern World Series, which continued pretty much unabated except for two years uh, for various reasons since then. But, um, you know, the Orioles are in all four of them. You know, we're talking about, did you find the leaders for any of those years? Well, I was just looking at some of the pitchers from those days. You got guys like Cy Young, Kid Nichols, Amos Rusi, Hall of Famers. So it's not as if there were no great pitchers in those days. It just seems as if, despite all their winning, none of them happened to be on the Orioles. So, 1894, I mentioned they they win their first pennant. They have, you know, we talked about the, the, the core of the team. Oh, and you know what I should also mention? I didn't even think about. I was getting him and Kid Nichols confused. Another manager on that team, Kid Gleason. Kid Gleason would go on to manage the White Sox in 1919 when they threw the World Series. Yes. So I And he I, was a pitcher, I believe. Yeah, he was. I just I read him during the pitching stats, but I always get him I get him confused with Kid Nichols just because they're both named Kid and they were both pitchers in 1890 whatever. But yeah, so it's kind of weird to think that, you know, all those managers on that team, but so the 1894 team, they go 89 and 39. They win the pennant by let me see exactly how much they won the pennant by. They win the pennant by just 3 games over the Giants. So they get to the championship series, the Temple Cup at the time, and they actually lose in four straight games to the Giants. They're the best team in the league, but they don't win that postseason series. You know, so again, it's hard to use modern sort of perspective on that, whether that was actually, you know, which one of those would you rather have had? You know, because in some cases, the postseason was almost seen like, just an additional thing and winning the pennant was the real big deal. And I think that is sort of the way it was. And I'll give some, when we get into some of these later years, I'll give some examples. I did want to mention a few off the field incidents from that particular series. And this is once again, from glory fades away. This great book by a lot of books on the 1890s Orioles. I have a lot. I will put them in the show notes. I I certainly do have quite a few books on the 1890s Orioles. I I must say none of them purchased in anticipation of this show. Correct. Correct. Yeah. No. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. This is after game one when the Orioles lose to the Giants. Later that evening, much later that evening, in fact, it was almost daybreak the next morning. During the World Series or during the whatever the, <laughs> the guys are out till daybreak. Go well, actually, to be fair, this, this story does not involve players. Oh, okay. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. A Judge Cullum from New York was celebrating the Giants' victory with a party of friends when he was approached by a rabid Orioles fan who wanted nothing more than to buy the good judge a drink. Cullum, 
being a judge and sober after all, demurred, offering the unlikely explanation that he was a confirmed teetotaler. The Baltimorean shouted, you cannot lie to a Maryland gentleman and escape the consequences, produced a pistol and fired two rounds. Both volleys missed their mark, and given the jurist's rather generous girth, many Baltimore residents made light of the episode, saying that no man who had actually aimed at the judge could have possibly missed him. Guy's probably really drunk. (laughs) Shooting the gun. Many New Yorkers also poked fun, pointing out that Baltimore's marksmanship apparently equaled its ability at baseball. You know, it's funny. I have a book on the first Congress in, what, 1789 or or whatever it was. And there's a a thing about, you know, because at the time there was a big debate about where the Capitol would be. It was in New York, but some people wanted to move it back to Philadelphia or whatever. And there's a a thing about like a poem that people in Philadelphia would recite to insult New Yorkers. And it's like, we tend to think of all of these things as modern creations, especially when it comes to sports as like these intercity feuds are, you know, each generation thinks they invented them, but intercity squabbles like this have gone back a long, long time. And sometimes lead to in the, in this day and age, it's bar fights In that day and age, it was an attempt at a bar shooting. And then the other funny thing that happens during this series is that in one of the later games, some horses get loose on the field and everybody has to run for cover. But you're right. Despite being the pennant winners in 1894, the Orioles lose to New York in four straight games. Yeah. So shall we move on to 1895? Yeah. So in 1895... Everybody is expecting that it's going to be New York and the Orioles again, but it ends up being a different team. It's the Orioles and the Cleveland Spiders, and they are led by a pitcher who, which is, who has a name that I think most people will be familiar with, and that is Cy Young, who is the star pitcher of the Cleveland Spiders, a younger man in those days. This is before he went to Boston in 1895, and that is the second-place team and their opponent in the 1895 Temple Cup series, and they also lose this one. Uh, they managed to squeak out a game, but they lose this one four to one. Yeah, so the 1895 Orioles, again, they win by three games. They win the pennant, obviously beating out Cleveland. Most of the roster is the same. The, the only real starting change is that a guy named Scoops Carey is the first baseman. Bruthers is on the team, but, you know, doesn't appear to get in too many games. Maybe he was off the team pretty quickly. But other than that, again, it's it's the same guys. It's Robinson. It's Kerry. It's Willie Keeler. Willie Keeler hits. Uh, what does he hit that year? Just 377 that year. McGraw also hits 369. Jennings hits 386. Some really excellent, you know, batting averages. Pitching is actually much better in 1895. A guy named Bill Hoffer. Wins 31 games with a 3.2 ERA. George Hemming wins 20 games with an ERA just over four. Duke Esper, Dad Clarkson, and Sadie McMahon all also win double-digit games with, with excellent ERAs. And my favorite thing about this 1895 team when you look, so the five starters each start 15 games or more, in some cases over 30. Then there's a guy named so those are the five starters. Then there's a guy named Artie Pond who pitches in six games, throws a total of 13 innings. Kid Gleason uh, throws 50 innings, and Bill Kissinger throws 11 innings, and that's it for the pitching. 
They use eight guys all year, and two of them don't throw 15 innings. So it's basically six pitchers the whole season they use. Wow. Even for those days, I think that's something that's definitely worth noting because a lot of times in those days you'd see, you know, they, they would just, if guys were hurt or whatever, they just have to pick extra pitchers up off the scrap heap, even if just for a game or two. So the fact that they only use six for the whole season is pretty impressive. Yep. So you were saying 1895, they meet Cleveland in the Temple Cup. They're swept again, you said? They lose four to one. Four to one. Okay. To the Cleveland Spiders. And this is when a lot of people in baseball and in the press and fans are starting to think that this whole Temple Cup thing might be a bad idea because not only has the second place team won both games, but the mighty first place Orioles have only managed to win one game out of nine. They've been swept off the field in one instance, literally swept and in the other one. They managed to pull out one game. Cy Young pitches and wins three games in this 1895 series. So the better team is not winning in the public eye in these Temple Cup series. Yeah, and it's again, it's something where it's, Obviously, the, the modern World Series is, is a little ways away, but you know, at least in the 1880s, you had two different leagues. So you could say, well, yeah, the team in the National League might have had a better record, but they didn't play the same teams. There was no crossover. You know, This seems more like a, an add-on that's not pleasing anybody. You know, in the, this day and age, I know we're, told we've, we're used to playoffs being a part of it, but you worry then about hurting your first six months of the season with, well, you know, the team that's winning these pennants isn't really. Now, luckily, in neither of these years that we've talked about so far, they've won the pennant by three games each time. So it's not like you're talking about a team that won the pennant by 20 games and then is losing the uh, postseason series in four or five games. There, You know, at least there was some some competition the whole year. But um, yeah, you can, like you said already, there people appear to be starting to sour on it just a bit. Yeah, and so then they go into 1896, and by 1896, attendance is really starting to drop off, but luckily for the Orioles in 1896, they get a rematch with the Cleveland Spiders, and this time they finally actually manage to win it. As a matter of fact, they sweep this series in four games and finally win a Temple Cup. They win the pennant in 1896, and they win the Temple Cup one of the things that's interesting is that by this point, the Temple Cup has become sort of an afterthought, so much so that the teams are pausing during their travel during the series to play exhibition games against each other that don't count as part of the best of seven in a Temple Cup. Yeah, and, and exhibition baseball is something that, again, growing up, either really anybody who's alive now doesn't, know just how prevalent it was. I have a book on the 1923 baseball season, which I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this podcast know, but it was a third straight Yankees Giants World Series. It was the Yankees first year in Yankee Stadium. Ironically, John McGraw is a character in it again. John McGraw and Babe Ruth and, you know, McGraw hated the Yankees. He hated the American League. He especially hated Babe Ruth. And, you know, by late September, it was clear they were both going to win the pennant and they were going to play again in a third World Series. And there's this exhibition in like late September where Babe Ruth wearing a Giants uniform is in the dugout on a team coached by John McGraw against, I don't even know who they were playing, but it's like in the book, it says like, this must be so bizarre to somebody in the, like a, 
a modern reader of this would be like, what is like, you know, could you imagine if the week before the World Series, if suddenly you had guys from the Astros on the Dodgers, like wearing Dodgers uniforms, playing an exhibition game to raise money for, you know, COVID relief or something like that. It would just be bizarre. I was going to make a comment that would probably not go over well and I'll probably end up cutting out. But all I can think of is it sounds like the kind of thing Adam Silver would want people to do. (laughs) How about right before the playoffs start, we just have LeBron play a few weeks for the Knicks in a tournament. Anyway, so they win in 96 and then in 97, they once again are in the Temple Cup but this time they actually lose the pennant. They lose to the Boston Bean Eaters, who we mentioned before. The Bean Eaters, who are led by sliding Billy Hamilton, who sets a record for Boston in that year, a record that stands to this day. I'm sorry, he didn't set the record in that year. He actually set it a few years earlier in 1894. He still holds this record to this day 198 runs in a single major league baseball season. He is definitely the best base stealer of the 19th century, a record that he's got the most runs in baseball history in a single season by 20, 21, actually a guy by the name of Tom Brown, who I'm not familiar with has 177 in nine, in 1891. And Babe Ruth also has 107 in 1921. I'm just looking here to see what kind of the most, okay in the sort of the most recent modern day number that I can find here. And it's possible. And by modern day, I'm just looking like last 50 years, Jeff Bagwell has 152 runs in 2000. So that is what 46 less than Billy Hamilton has in 1894. So that is a record that stands to this day and will almost certainly never be broken. Hamilton is as I said, the great base stealer of the 19th century. I just want to see where he is all time in stolen bases because I think he's still not that far back. He He's third all time in stolen bases. I'm guessing he's behind only Brock and Henderson. Yeah, he has, and he's honestly, he's not behind Brock by that much. He's Brock has 938, Hamilton has 914, and then Ricky Henderson just has an insane... 1406 so it's like I think Hamilton might try to come back to pass Brock for second I think it's unlikely he passed away in 1940 so probably unlikely to do that but again one of these you know Hamilton you know guy that not a lot of people have heard of but one of the the great players of the 19th century and he leads this Boston Bean Eaters team that edges Baltimore out for the pennant the first pennant that the Orioles have lost in four seasons I just want 1896 Huey Jennings hit 401 in 1896, which is obviously great for the era and ever, but he is dwarfed the next year in 1897 by Willie Keeler who hits 424. That is, and this is also the year of Keeler's hitting streak, the year of Willie Keeler's 44 game hitting streak, which from my understanding, and you would obviously know more about this than me, you know, as the Maggio's getting up there in 41, you know, they know about a couple of records. And then during the hitting streak, isn't that when they basically discovered, oh, yeah, Willie Keeler way back in 1897 had a 44-game hitting streak where they had thought the record was like 38 or something like that? 
I think the record they thought was George Sisler's, which was like high 30s, low 40s. Okay. And then they discovered this 1897. One thing that we should mention about this, and this is a topic for another show, throughout the time period we're talking about, the, some of the rules in baseball are strange or just different. You know, I think the pitching mound doesn't reach its current distance, the 60 feet, six inches until sometime in the middle of the 1890s. There, there were a couple years where foul balls didn't count as strikes. And I'm not a hundred percent on this, but there might've been a few years even where, where walks counted as part of your batting average. Now one year where walks counted as batting average. I think that was in like 1880 something. Cause I, the reason I know that is because when Derek Jeter was, um, chasing you know 3000 and then when he got above 3000 and was was going for some other records cap anson's numbers if you look there's like six different numbers because some places count every hit he got you know listed as in his career which includes the one year that hits were walks and it also includes games he played in the national association before the national league was founded which some places count as major league stats some don't so it was like some places counted everything. Some places took away the walks, the year walks counted as hits. Some counted the National Association. Some didn't count the National Association. So there was like six different possible numbers for Cap Anson's all-time hit total. But I believe that was earlier than um, than this. Yeah, and I wonder if they were able to go back and retroactively change some of those batting averages. They didn't maybe- change them. They can calculate them, but they didn't change them because those are the rules at the time. Really? Yeah, they, I think they've left those in place, yeah. That's strange to me. I mean, I mean, I know that there's certain things you don't want to go back and change. Like, I know for a while, for a while, a home run counted even if the ball bounced over the fence. And I can understand why you wouldn't want to count that because the guy, you know, he got the home run. He got the four bases. But I feel like there'd be nothing strange about just going out back and saying, okay, this wasn't a hit. This was a walk. It seems like it would be a pretty clean adjustment to make. But I'm sure they had some reason or another for not doing that. Yeah, I know with Ruth, they they figured he had like three of those where the ball bounced over and they counted as a home run, but then he also lost two where it used to be if a home run ended the game, like if you if it was a tie game and there was a man on first and you hit a home run. Oh, good point. I didn't count, think of that. They didn't count the your home run. The, they basically considered the game over the second the winning run scored. So it was basically like a single, even though it was actually a home run. So I think they figured out that like the total number for Ruth using modern standards is only like one less than it would have been anyway. I To me, with the walks thing, and I'm looking up the exact year, to me, that was the rule that year. I mean, again, you don't like to wade too much into revisionist, revisionist history when it comes to, well, should everything before 1947 have an asterisk next to it because African-Americans weren't allowed to play? You know, they're like you don't like that. So I think for one year that walks counted as hits, I think you got to just say, hey, they counted as hits. Yeah, I guess it's just because the reality is so clean to me. You know what I mean? You know, we don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here. But it was 1887, by the way, so it doesn't enter into this discussion at all. No, no, it doesn't. But, you know, so for instance, I mean, the Jackie Robinson thing is a whole different thing. You know, the question becomes, you know, one of the many questions, but it's like, where do you cut it off? You know, and you talk about, you know, dead ball or the spitball or night games or any of these things. It's like, it, you, you couldn't make that change cleanly. 
Um, you know, do Jackie Robinson's stats from 1947 not count because he didn't play against any other black players? You know, there's all this other weird stuff. To me, it just seems like you could go back and say, okay, X number of hits that these guys, that this guy had were actually walks. So this is what his batting average would be if we were calculating it by every single other standard before or since. But, you know, they've chosen not to do it for some reason. So, um, so by 1897, the... Temple Cup is really losing any sort of fan base that it may have once had, and they decide to discontinue it after that year. The Orioles finish second again in 1898. I want to see who is it that who is it that beats them out in 1898. It's Boston again in 1898, and by this point, I think we there's only one more season left of the Baltimore Orioles. I did have a couple of things that I wanted to just um, just random things that I just wanted to to touch on before we sort of started about the beginning of the end. Did you have anything that you wanted to add on that front? No, I was just going to say they're playing um, for the most part at, at Union Park during this. You know, I'm a big ballpark guy, so I always got to bring that up. They moved there during the 1891 season, later renamed 25th. It's currently, I guess, on 25th Street and Greenmont Avenue. There was a fire there, which pretty common back then. I don't believe this one was started due to John McGraw. I'll let, I'll let you get to it, but it is important to say all the cheating and stuff and the, the sort of brawling, you can look back on it wistfully and certainly they weren't the only ones doing it, but there was a reputation of baseball and the Orioles in general of this is kind of a black eye for baseball in the eyes of the rest of society. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we talk about the ending part. But go ahead with anything you had to say. Well, your point about Baltimore and where they played is an interesting one. And that does sort of dovetail a little bit with something that I wanted to say, which is that Wilbert Robinson, who we talked about before, who was the team's catcher and later a great player or great manager in his own right with the Brooklyn, what would eventually become the Brooklyn Robins. He owns a bar in Baltimore, and it is widely believed that this bar is where they invented duck pin bowling, which is a type of bowling that is very popular in the Baltimore and the greater Maryland area where the pins are a lot smaller. If you come from where we come from in New York, you tend to look at that bowling as not real bowling, but it is a sort of an institution in Maryland and in the Baltimore area specifically. I've never done duck pin bowling. The day of your wedding, we had to do the New England style bowling, the candle pin bowling, which was dumb. Uh, <laughs> and and I, you, I, I do remember going back to the hotel after that, and and uh, must have been somebody on your wife's side of the family, or or it was definitely from your wife's side of the wedding party, because we came back and you know they knew oh yeah the the groom and uh, and his you know his brother and the groomsmen were out bowling and somebody with a very thick Boston accent, you know, somebody asked, Oh, how did it go? And I said, well, that's my first time doing that kind of bowling. I'm, I'm used to the, you know, the more normal or regular. I said one of those two words. I think I said normal. I was like, I'm used to the more normal 10 pin bowling. And a guy with a very thick Boston accent said, that is that kind of bowling. And I was like, all right, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but go my, ahead. My understanding is that duck pin and candle pin are pretty similar and then the other thing I wanted to mention, and I found this in one of the books that I read, and if you give me a second, I will tell you which one. This is the the history of the Baltimore Orioles, the one that was written in the 50s by uh, the great sports writer Frederick Lieb. 
the Orioles were big spenders for the time. They oftentimes were, there were a couple seasons where they spent more money on their team and their player salaries than every other team in the national league combined. So this is obviously the reserve clause was in effect, but you still had to pay the guys first of all. And second of all, you had to sign them in the first place. There was no draft. So, that part of it then as now, I think can't entirely be ruled out is that the Orioles more so than any other team knew how to spend the money that they needed to win. And then I guess the only other thing that I would mention is, is that this team is sort of kind of a blip on the radar screen as far as major professional sports in Baltimore. They don't really get a team until the Colts in the fifties. And then, I mean, they had the, like, there's a one Colt team in the early 50s. It lasts for a year, I think, and then goes away. There, there might have been a Baltimore Colts in the old uh, the AAFC in the late 1940s, but it's like 60 years from when this team is big to when Johnny Unitas is leading the Colts to NFL championships against the Giants in the late 50s. So there's a really long gap as far as professional sports in Baltimore. And you don't really see that because most of the other cities that have baseball teams during this time period, they continue to have baseball teams throughout the early 20th century when all there is is baseball or they also, you get cities like Chicago who have, whether it's hockey or, you know, you get the Chicago bears starting in the 1920s, New York gets the giants Baltimore, for being such a big-time major league city in the 1890s, doesn't really have any relevance in professional sports for another half a century. No, the only thing that would be relevant is just that that's where Babe Ruth came from. That's you know That becomes the big Baltimore baseball thing between the late 1890s and 1954 is Babe Ruth. And I think they have a team in the International League for a little while. They may also they have a. They do have a federal league team for two uh, years, and the way I, the Baltimore Terrapins, nineteen thirteen, nineteen fourteen, and if you look, they had a really cool logo. It's like a, I guess a terrapin. I would say a turtle with like a Baltimore, like a bi. The, the Terrapins had a really cool logo, but yeah, the federal league was only around two years. Um, another team, another league, we'll most likely talk about when we do our episode on expansion uh, leagues in professional baseball. So. There's a few different elements to the downfall of the team. Where do you want to start? So let's just talk, I would say, so 1898, like you mentioned, they, the Temple Cup is gone. They finish in second. By late 1898, after the season ends, there's rumors that Hanlon is going to move to Brooklyn to the team that would later be known as the Dodgers and the Robins, and right now is known as the Brooklyn Bridegrooms. And he's going to take a bunch of Orioles players with him. There's underway, there's discussions that the two teams are going to be consolidated. They have the same owners, I believe, at this point. And that was one thing I was going to mention is there's this idea in a couple of the books that I consulted. It's called syndicate baseball. And what that basically means is it's something that would never be allowed today where you have the same owner or small group of owners owning multiple teams in the National League. And actually, Brooklyn and Baltimore sort of come late to the game. Some of these other teams had been, you know, their ownership had been consolidated earlier 
in the 1890s. The most famous of this was the Cleveland Spiders, who were purchased by, I don't know, was the other team the Boston team that, that owned the Cleveland Spiders? I'll look it up. I believe so. And that's, you'll see that still sometimes when people talk about the worst teams in baseball history. 1899 Cleveland Spiders went 20 and 134, which is an inconceivably bad. It's a 130 winning percentage. The year before, they were 81 and 68. And what were they were? They were in fifth. They weren't like a pennant contender, but they got what 61 games worse and that's because the owner of the team moved all of his guys to it was it wasn't boston it was st louis it was the st louis browns who later became the cardinals yeah and that's what happened and that's the reason they don't let you do that anymore is because if you own two teams it does not take long for you to just go we'll just put all our good players on one team it's only happened once since the late 1900s and that's when the yankees basically owned the Kansas City A's, although that wasn't official. <laughs> no, that's not actually what it was, but it, it sometimes felt like it, didn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, so th- there's rumors that that's going to happen in 1898. And it says, ultimately, a deal was struck, which resulted in Hanlon and Baltimore owner Harry Vanderhurst receiving stock in the Brooklyn club and with Vanderhurst as the controlling shareholder of both clubs. So... Hanlon became the manager of Brooklyn and took Keeler, Kelly, and Jennings with him to Brooklyn. They changed from the bridegrooms to the superbas simply because the new manager shared the same name as the popular vaudeville acrobatic troupe known as Hanlon's superbas. The 1899 superbas go to 101 and 47, win the National League pennant, led by Keeler and Kelly, and then some other players, you know, who'd already been there. The Dodgers, excuse me, the Orioles back in Baltimore promote John McGraw to his first managerial job in 1899. They go down to fourth place. You know, they've lost most of their best players and their manager, and the writing is kind of on the wall at that point. And that's their last year. Yep. So, you know, obviously they lose that. And what happens is the National League, which had been at 12 teams since 1892, they decide going into 1900, they're going to go down to eight teams. And obviously right off the bat, the two teams that are basically have been stripped for parts for the owners of the other, or the owner's other team in the same league go. So you see Baltimore go, you see Cleveland go, Louisville goes, and then who's the fourth team that goes? Washington. So Washington, Baltimore, Cleveland, and Louisville go. You end up with the classic National League of the eight teams that would remain the same until the early 60s and until the mid-50s would remain in the same cities. And the funny thing is, and this is a little bit of a digression, is that those eight teams remain in the National League to this day. It's the... Giants, Dodgers, Braves, the Cardinals, the Reds, the Pirates, the Phillies, and the Cubs. Yep, and all with the same names. Too. Yeah, names whereas mean, meanwhile, like in the American League, the Senators became somebody else. The St. Louis Browns became somebody else. But those eight, Ameri- those eight National League teams from 1900 remain, some, a few of them in different cities, but those eight teams with their entire... Franchise history, team name, color scheme, you name it, 
remain in the National League 120 years later. So that happens in 1900. McGraw goes with Wilbert Roberts, Wilbur Robinson to St. Louis for a year to the Cardinals, just as players, you know, with the understanding that it would just be for one year. Cause back then with the reserve clause, obviously if you go to a team, you're bound there forever, but I guess they had worked out a deal with the Cardinals owners and with the national league that we'll go there for a year. We're not staying there. So they go there, obviously Hamlin and a lot of those guys are still up in Brooklyn and then going into 1901, what had been the Western League decides to rename itself the American League. They add teams in three cities, three of the four cities that had lost teams in the National League in 1899, 1900. So Washington is getting a team. Philadelphia gets a team. Baltimore gets a team. You also have Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, Boston gets a team, and Cleveland. Cleveland gets a team. So hey, I don't think that Philly was one of the teams that had lost a National League team. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. So fi- they had Philly. They had Boston. And then they, you know, so, so you get the Amer- American League teams. Milwaukee is only in Milwaukee for a year before they move to St. Louis. But the Orioles are coming back. They've been gone for a couple of years, or I guess just one year at this point. They're going to be in the American League, kind of an upstart league. And John McGraw is going to be the manager of the American League, Baltimore Orioles. This starts a long-standing feud is not a strong enough word between McGraw and the American League and Ben Johnson that then later grows into what becomes of the Orioles, which we'll talk about in a second. But basically by halfway through the 1902 season, McGraw is so fed up that he jumps to the National League takes over the fledgling New York Giants and is there for 30 plus years, wins a bunch of championships, a bunch of pennants, and becomes one of the iconic baseball managers of all time. And I believe that he rated the team in 1902 as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. At the end of the 1902 season, the American League is negotiating with the National League for kind of a joint piece This leads to the creation of the World Series in 1903, and what it also does is pave the way for an American League team to be able to play in the biggest market in the country, which is New York City. So they are, you know, the National League agrees and the Giants agree they won't stand in the American League's way. They then promptly do just that in terms of not letting the American League, basically trying to block anywhere that the American League is trying to put a stadium for the New York team, but that leads to the nascent Baltimore Orioles, the American League version after just two years, moving to northern Manhattan, becoming the New York Highlanders, eventually becoming the New York Yankees, eventually sharing a stadium with John McGraw at the Polo Grounds, and then becoming their blood rivals with Babe Ruth and moving just across the Harlem River to the Bronx where they remain this day. Some of the guys that McGraw takes with him in 1902 from the Baltimore team in the American League to the New York Giants are Joe McGinnity, who would go on to be a Hall of Fame pitcher, sort of the number two to Christy Mathewson on those Giants teams in the 19, early 1900s. Roger Bresnahan, who's a Hall of Fame catcher. And also Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly had had an interesting career. He, like a lot of these other guys, had gone over to Brooklyn in 1899. But then in 1902, he had gone back to the 
American League or back to Baltimore for the Baltimore American League team. And he actually, I'm looking here, he doesn't jump to the Giants. He actually jumps to the Cincinnati Reds. But nonetheless, the Orioles lose three Hall of Famers almost at once in one, you know, couple of week period during the season. And if you factor in McGraw, that's four. So that essentially, like you said, decimates the team. I think for a long time, correct me, maybe you know about this, but for a long time, Major League Baseball considered those two years in Baltimore as part of the Yankee franchise. I don't think they do anymore. Oh, did the Orioles have it? I don't think anybody has it. I think they just sort of have determined, because I think there's an issue where like they didn't technically moved the team they folded one team and brought in another I, I could look up more detail on this but I'm, I'm pretty sure that as far as major league baseball is concerned let me look on baseball reference real quick because baseball reference right now not that this is the be-all and end-all of what major league baseball considers official but you're right baseball reference begins it in 1903 and i think if you just give me a second here i think there's an explanation that goes with it too i think it's let me and obviously we can while you're looking it up, um, so, you know, a couple more things here. So, obviously, McGraw becomes a Giants manager. First World Series is in 1903, the first modern World Series between Boston and Pittsburgh. 1904, the Giants are on their way to a pennant. It appears for most of the year that the Giants would be headed to face the New York Highlanders. That was the year Jack Chesborough won 41 games. And McGraw basically says, well, we're not playing that 1904 Yankee team was the one I was talking about before that Willie Keeler was one of the best offensive players on. Ultimately, Boston beats the Highlanders out for the pennant anyway, but McGraw's already taken a stand. He's got the very famous quote about, we're not required to play a minor league franchise who won a, a minor league, you know, so basically gets the World Series canceled, which or you know doesn't happen largely because of his contempt for the American League, for Ban Johnson, and also for the New York team by the next year he relents and is playing in the World Series against the Philadelphia Athletics in 1905 did you find the thing you were looking for I did so this is from July of 2014 and it's just funny because this reads like something much weightier than what it actually is as far as like just like historical import but for people like us it's very interesting Baseball reference has made the move to dissociate the New York Yankees franchise from the 1901 and 1902 Baltimore Orioles, not connected to the current Baltimore Orioles franchise. This adjustment allows us to fall in line with the Yankees franchise itself and most references, including Total Baseball, edited by MLB's official historian, blah, blah, blah. Additionally, ESPN considers them separate franchises, and this is the reasoning they supply. The deciding factor was that the Baltimore franchise went bust during the season and was turned over to the league. After the season, the league then sold a new franchise to investors in New York City. We felt that wasn't really a relocation or a transfer. It was simply filling the gap in the league that was opened when the Orioles franchise disintegrated. Of the 39 players who appeared for Baltimore in 1902, only five appeared for New York in 1903. Jimmy Williams was a regular second baseman for both clubs. One guy on the Yankees in 03 had played one game for Baltimore in 02. So basically, you're looking at like two or three guys who actually could be considered to have played, you know, in any real sense for both teams. So I think that's that's logical. So just to kind of finish this up, in my opinion, so 
Ned Hanlon, who had left, is still in Brooklyn. He's still managing Brooklyn by, you know, the bloom is sort of off the rose by 1903. Keeler's gone. They drop to fifth place. He stays there through 1905, ultimately goes to Cincinnati for a couple of years. One of his best players in the 1906 Reds is Miller Huggins, who goes on to manage those Yankees in the 20s under Babe with Babe. Well, not under Babe Ruth, but in a lot of ways under Babe Ruth. So another manager that came from the Ned Hanlon tree, so to speak. But a couple other things about Hanlon. So the Orioles leave or dissolve in 1902. And although Hanlon is is still managing in Brooklyn, he January of 03, he purchases the Montreal Royals of the Eastern League for $5,000 and moves the club to Baltimore as the newest incarnation of the Orioles. He purchases the ballpark that the American League Orioles had been using for $3,000. And it's a two-year-old ballpark that had cost $21,000 to build. So pretty good deal for him. He owns the Eastern League Orioles through 1908. So he's responsible for bringing minor league professional baseball, but bringing professional baseball back to Baltimore and then has sort of one last hurrah with Baltimore baseball. He had retired from managing in 1907, after the 1907 season with Cincinnati. In 1913, he became the principal shareholder of the Baltimore Terrapins of the Federal League. They played 1914 and 1915. He did not manage them. They finished in third and 14, finished in uh, last place in 15, and then the Federal League collapsed. But Hanlon obviously still, despite having left, you know, did some things in Baltimore baseball, brought back uh, a minor league team, tried to bring back a major league team, but ultimately that wasn't able to stick. And then it would be, uh, you know, 50 years until the St. Louis Browns moved east for the modern day Baltimore Orioles. Yeah. So I think, and I guess you could really kind of consider them the first real dynasty in American sports. Yeah. I mean, again, it goes depending on how much stock you want to put in 1870s baseball and, you know, teams that what was it the Cincinnati red stockings with that winning streak. You're probably right. I mean, the, the national, you know, it gets a little diluted with the temple cup stuff. Cause you know, they won, they the, lost two of them. Yeah. Which again, how much does that count? in the modern sense, but um, yeah, I mean, they were really, if you talk about the national league prior to 1900, I don't know that they're the first topic that comes up, but they're the first, second or third, the the 1890s Orioles. Certainly they're the most important story of 1890s baseball. And they're probably the most important story of pre 1900, you know, post civil war, pre 1900 baseball is that you know brief four or five year period of that Baltimore Orioles because of the guys that that then spawned who you know think about some of those names we mentioned John McGraw managed until the 30s so that sort of torch was carried on for a very long time in baseball so they're famous for that they're obviously famous for some of the underhanded and and aggressive tactics. You still hear the phrase Baltimore chop to this day, a lasting impact well beyond a team that 120 years ago had four really good seasons. They have sort of persisted amongst a, the more historically conscious baseball fans to this day. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for joining us into the second journey in 
of a 90s Orioles team. Andrew, did you have anything else to add before we signed off? Next week, the 1790s Baltimore <laughs> Orioles. I believe a horse played left field. A very aging George Washington was the first baseman. Um, I think if we talked about the 1790s Baltimore Orioles, we would have to actually talk about literal Orioles. And like I, bird watching in the 1790s. Kind of like those early days of Sports Illustrated where they didn't exactly know what it was going to be yet. So, you know, if you look at the, the covers of Sports Illustrated, I have a, shockingly, I have a book of all of the Sports Illustrated covers and it's funny if you look at the first, it started in 1954. And it's funny if you, ironically, the first, the same year that the uh, new Baltimore Orioles started. But if you look at the first like couple of years, half the covers were, you know, Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle or, uh, you know, Jim Brown or whatever. But then half of them were like bridge hunting. There's a, you know, it's like a dog on the front of it. There's lots of pictures of dogs and like one of them's about gourmets, which had something to do with cooking. I don't know how you could possibly make that sports. Was it like work (laughs) back then? Like anything that wasn't like manufacturing was like sports. (laughs) Eating dinner was sports. Well, I don't know if um, we thought we would end on that note, but I think we will. Uh, Until next time, I am Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.